Welcome everyone back to Martial Arts Medcast. This is episode five. Today we're going to be covering some topics on COVID-19 um, and we have a special guest here, Dr. Jess Mendel. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mendel. Thank you, Chuck. It's good, uh, it's good to be here. You're a pulmonary critical care doc at UCSD, correct? And could you kind of give me some of your background? Of sure. So I grew up in Chicago originally, uh, did my undergraduate work at Brown University in Rhode Island, did med school at Baylor in Houston, and then did my internal medicine and uh, pulmonary and critical care training in Boston at the Harvard hospitals. Was on faculty there for a few years. Then I went to the University of Iowa where I started the pulmonary hypertension program and um, was assistant dean and came to UCSD in 2006. Wow. You know, I, I never knew you were from Chicago. No wonder why I like you. <laughs> it's a good town. Yeah. I, I, grew up, I grew up in Indiana, but, you know, just right across the border. Oh, okay. Great. So you, you've shared the Chicago sports heartbreak, I'm sure, many times in your life as well. Oh, yeah. Yep. I grew up about 20, probably 20, 25 minutes from uh, White Sox Stadium. Oh, okay. Sure. Back when it was, you know, what was it? It's U.S. Cellular now or... I mean, it's changed like three or four. It, it's always Comiskey to me. So what can you say? Yeah. Comiskey. Um, it, they can change the name, but it doesn't change how many fans come to the right. game. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's the uh, new Comiskey. Yeah. So awesome, man. So why uh, why did you choose San Diego? You know, it's it's interesting because when I, I, I grew up always thinking I wanted to go back to Chicago and you know, I went away to college and I went to med school, but I always thought I'll be going back at some point. And then... You know, at some point, it sort of dawned on me. There's no, there's no ideal latitude and longitude for for people. That wherever you live, there's there's good things, there's less good things, and you try to structure your life to take advantage of the good stuff. But I went into academic medicine, and I had a sense that public institutions sort of resonated with my sense of mission a little bit more. Um, I wanted to be at a place that really served as a safety net hospital in addition to providing these sort of tertiary high-end kinds of things. And UCSD, interestingly, was where my brother was an undergraduate. So he grew up in Chicago, he had very bad asthma, and he went to UCSD in part, you know, for the school, in part because the climate was good for his health. So this was the first college campus I ever visited. I was like 15, you know, visiting my big brother. I, it didn't, it never occurred to me I would be a faculty member someday um, at the same place. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, this San Diego is great for just about everything. It seems like less. Yeah. I came out here, less allergies until the wind starts blowing and we get the right bananas. But that's really cool. I mean, every time I go back to Chicago, I, I feel like, man, this is I, I want to go back and I almost could see myself living there again, and then I come back to San Diego, and it's it's I'm happy. I'm like oh, I'm I'm back home. Yeah, I think I could be happy in in you know multiple places, but it is uh it is true. I'm always happy to to go there. I do feel like when I go to Chicago, I, I you know I feel like the fit in shape guy, whereas like in San Diego, I feel like the less in shape, less fit guy. So you know there there is that. Yeah, definitely a different culture. But I mean, if it was nice like that, like this year round in Chicago, I think people would be moving a little more. 
No, I love Chicago. I, I love going back to visit. My son just graduated from the University of Chicago, so that oh, gave awesome. them opportunities to come back and visit and see friends and go to old places. So very cool. You, I love University of Chicago. It's an amazing campus too. Yeah, beautiful. Did he? Uh, was he? Is he in medicine as well? No, he plans to be an art history professor. So okay. following me into academics, but in a slightly different path. Never started liking history until a little. I mean, now I, I love reading history books mm -hmm. and stuff. So it's cool. Your your son's getting into that different path. I feel like most parents that are that are doctors, their kids like feel like they have to go into medicine. Yeah, no, we never we never really you know pushed anything. You just I think you, people need to find their own path and what's a good fit and and pursue it and. You know, I served as associate dean at the medical school for here for like 12 years and dealt with the students a lot. And occasionally you would see a student who was sort of having a crisis because they had made it to med school, but they weren't sure they actually wanted to do it. You know, it was something their parents had sort of directed them to or whatever else. So I think it's important to, you know, everyone to identify their interests, test those interests and then pursue it. So. Yes, definitely. I mean, sucks being forced into anything i'm sure when they're done they're like maybe they're happy they did it but right it's tough to get forced into something like that who would who would do that to themselves yeah the medical school <laughs> <laughs> so um what what i brought you on here today mostly to talk about is uh i want to kind of get into uh we're dealing with a crisis here right what is covid 19 and you know how does it affect the body so you know, if you think back a year ago, we were just starting to hear about some virus in China, but pretty much every year we would hear about some virus in China and it didn't usually turn out to be anything. And this obviously turned out to be, to be a huge thing. So COVID-19 is one of a group of viruses called coronaviruses that we've all been infected with. It's sort of one of the causes of the common cold, usually just causes very mild disease. But this particular virus, made the jump from non-human species. And when that happens, the, the viruses are not well adapted for doing what viruses do. And they, the, the body's reaction to them tends to be more severe, they're more fatal. And ultimately it's a lose-lose. It's a lose for humans, we get sicker and die, um, and the virus can't actually reproduce and spread in the same way it could if it made us less ill and allowed us to walk around infecting more people. At this point, do we even know where the virus came from? Is that confirmed at this point? Well, comparing the nucleic acid sequence in the virus to, to other non-human coronaviruses, it seems as if bats are the most likely host um, and, and made the jump, although that's not 100% certain. They talk about it being man-made and all that too, but given what those wet markets look like, it seems pretty likely that something would come from from one of those yeah that would seem a, a big assumption i mean just I, I think as we've seen this would not be a very good biological weapons agent because of the way it spreads and where it spreads there's not a country on earth that hasn't been impacted by this we've been dealing with this for about i mean since for about a year i don't know it started we put our ban what in january it started getting really bad in about what march mm -hmm. um, how is like how has care changed for the patient? It's it's interesting to look back. So at UCSD, we we kind of had a head start because in February 
one of the evacuation flights from Wuhan uh, was routed to land in, at Miramar uh, Marine Corps Air Station. So we started getting a handful of patients in February and it was almost sort of a dress rehearsal that allowed us to realize the changes we need to make in terms of our protocols. How do we um, isolate these patients? How do we, you know, what if the patient needs a CAT scan? What do you have to do to take them downstairs and do it? How do you wipe down the machine? All of these things we sort of had a head start so we could make protocols for those things. I think initially there was a, a great concern that we would lose a lot of doctors and nurses would be knocked out due to getting COVID because we had seen that in Italy, we had seen that in Iran, um, you know, China to some degree. And so that was a big concern because as we modeled taking care of these patients, you need people to do it. And you couldn't really figure out how many people would be out sick, would people die of this? And I think that's been a great victory to see that infections of healthcare workers, you know, when they're using personal protective equipment have been very rare in the occupational setting. It's not zero, but it's pretty close. You know, what we saw in Spain and Italy was that the most dangerous time in an epidemic is before you realize you're in an epidemic where people really are taking no precautions and, you know, everyone's getting exposed. And, and thankfully we were able to avoid that. I think another area is we have medical therapy that we didn't have at the beginning. We tend to use remdesivir and dexamethasone routinely in patients who are sicker. And there's some suggestion that um, tilts outcomes in the right way. I think the monoclonal antibodies that have come out in the last few weeks, the news has sort of gotten buried under the vaccine news, but I think that's very useful therapy for people who are high risk and get sick as well. And then our approach to you know ventilation and caring for these patients has changed as well. And I think that's part of the reason we're having fewer patients on mechanical ventilation in this current wave. Why do you think that we have less people than, uh, intubated or ventilated at this point? I think part of it is um, we understand the course of the disease better. Whenever patients have respiratory failure, you never want to wait too long before um, putting them on a breathing machine. And in part is that when you put them to sleep to get them on there, it's a very unstable situation. So if they have no room to move, if they're already, you know, have low oxygen, no matter what you do, there's a potential to have them have cardiac arrest while you're doing it, et cetera. So I think early on, we wanted to err on the side of earlier intubation. The other thing is some of the technologies we use, what's called heated high flow oxygen via blender, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, BiPAP, things like this. We were very re reluctant to use at first. And the, the issue there was concern that those would aerosolize the virus and cause risk to the doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists who are caring for these, these patients. And what we've learned, I think, in the last six months is that it's true. You do get more aerosolization of virus from those techniques, but it turns out the protective equipment that we're using, N95 masks, things of that sort, make it so that increased risk doesn't translate into increased risk for the people taking care of them. A lot of the data were actually from the SARS epidemic in 2003, where people weren't even wearing masks. And there you did see more infections in terms of healthcare workers when those modalities were used. So now, as of course, we try to put off putting people on breathing machines as long as we can. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not. Overall, I think it shifted more patients to the non-intubated part. The other thing that I worry about, or that I suspect maybe playing a role, though we don't have a huge amount of scientific evidence, is I wonder if the virus has evolved a little bit as well. You know, from the, vi the standpoint of the virus, it, it's more successful if it's more infectious and less deadly. 
And I think what we're seeing in this most recent wave is exactly that. We have many more patients sick, but relatively fewer in the ICU. We have more in the ICU overall, but as a percentage of total cases has gone down. So hopefully that trend will continue. So with the mutation, I mean, generally with viruses, they do this, right? So it comes out, it can be very deadly, uh, not quite as contagious, and then it evolves and becomes less, usually less deadly or less? Yes, th those would be the, the, the virus variants that would be most successful and would tend to propagate and reproduce the most efficiently. So over time, they're going to kind of push out other ones, you know, that are less infectious, more deadly, that are more of a dead end, and they just can't propagate as, as efficiently. It's interesting, because they found, I, I did just see an article yesterday about, um, it was it was in Los Angeles saying they may have found that, or they think that the mutated, the virus had mutated there as well. Already. Yeah, and you know, there was a lot of press about um, sort of, this mutated virus in Great Britain and South Africa that may be more infectious. Thankfully, it still seems susceptible to the vaccination strategy. And I'm not sure exactly how excited to get about this, because again, my suspicion is if you looked carefully, you would find lots of mutations all around the world that all point in a similar direction, which is increased infectivity and decreased mortality. Do you? Th I mean, this is kind of, I know you can't answer this. Do you think that a lot of times even it's becoming less deadly because a lot of people who are very susceptible to it are, well, I'm sure they're being smarter, but also a lot of those people basically are casualties of the virus. Already. Yeah, no, I mean, certainly the toll of the virus has been extremely high. Um, but I do think people who are most at risk are being better at protecting themselves. And unfortunately, people who are lower risk are kind of, can, can be pretty bad about protecting themselves following public health guidelines. I think, you know, when we drive through Pacific Beach, you see lots of, you know, 25 year olds in groups and congregating and stuff like that. And that's a calculus which may make sense for them as individuals and in that most of them, barring some underlying condition, are at lower risk for severe disease. They're not at no, no risk. We have 33 year old, we have people in their 30s we admit regularly, I admitted a 19 year old a couple of weeks ago. So no guarantee, but overall they're, they're less at risk for severe um, complications. So while it may make sense for them, unfortunately is not good for society overall because it means there's more virus circulating in the community and the people who are at risk are more likely to get it. Yeah. PB. Yeah. That, I remember when all of this started, it was like, there was a bar that got closed down there. Was, I don't know if you're familiar with El Prez, but that place, mm -hmm. they just disregarded all capacity yeah. all rules. And there was like, hundreds of people body to body in there and they got closed down. Right. But of course in PV, they're going to find a way to party, you know? Right. I mean, I guess, you know, when I was in college, I mean, it didn't matter where the you know party was or what, what the consequences, you just kind of go with it and have a good time, I guess. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, ha having said that, I, I, when we look at the cases we have, it's not, you know, what, what, what we tend to see are that, People who live in multi-generational families are at particular risk. So if you have elderly folks, you know, with diabetes, with other underlying conditions, and they're, you know, living with kids and grandkids, the, their, their kids may be essential workers and they're out and about. Their grandkids may be being less cautious because, again, you know, they're, they feel invincible at the age they're at. Yeah. Um, 
and and those kinds of things. You can see these very sad situations where you end up with multiple family members, you know, sick, multiple family members in different hospitals, all this this kind of thing. So, yeah. When you mentioned you mentioned the young the young people, the nineteen people in their thirties, because I've seen it too. You know, um, I I've seen those patients, but a lot of times I I do feel like they have some type of underlying condition, whether they're pre pre diabetic or yeah, they just, they didn't know they had something or they're obese or do you find that with the young people? Or are we seeing like absolutely young, healthy people coming in? With severe yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're right. You see it's more commonly if there's some type of condition and they may or may not have been aware of it, but you do occasionally see someone where you're like, boy, if they have any risk factor, I sure can't see it. I remember admitting someone who's exactly my age, 56 with like zero risk factors and you notice that. And certainly, again, 19-year-olds, 24-year-olds, this kind of thing. And they frequently have this look like this isn't supposed to happen. You know, they're not supposed to be this, uh, this sick. It's definitely scary. The confidence, I, I'm, you know, when we're at work, though, like I never feel, I, I, when I first started, I did an assignment up in San Francisco. When I first started taking care of COVID patients, when I was preparing to go up there, I was actually really worried. I was like, well, I mean, this could almost I might even come back from here. Like, I honestly didn't mm-hmm. feel that, you know, when I was driving up there, I'm like, I knew I was going to the COVID unit and I was, we're full of patients and we're proning 16 patients. I'm like, Oh my God. Like, and we had, you know, then I get up there and we're not used to that. So we're having vent disconnections and, right. you know, we got very good at that quickly, you know, to not have that, those things happen. But I, I don't know if I have the antibodies, but I've never had, you know, COVID from my understanding. So the gear definitely works, you know? Yeah. And I've only, it's a handful of nurses I've known that have gotten COVID from work and who knows if it was even from work. Right. No, we had two physicians in our group who have gotten COVID during this. Thankfully, they both had fairly mild courses. As far as we can guess, we think one of them um, probably got it not at work. The other one was involved in a sort of high risk tracheostomy and there was some break in you know, equipment or some other factor and that the timing seems like that may have been a played a role. Yeah. Um, but by and large, I think people have been um, happy with how secure they feel. And, you know, it always gets to be a problem when there's more virus circulating in the community and more people getting sick who are healthcare workers. We saw this in Tijuana when we go down there that they were using much more personal protective equipment than, than we do. I mean, multiple gloves, gowns, you know, bunny suits, et cetera. And a lot of it had escalated because people kept getting sick. And in retrospect, probably almost all those infections were from outside the hospital, but people always worry, you know, so they would sort of go more and more. And I think now they're, they're, they're peeling back and doing more similar to what we're doing in terms of how they protect their staff and it's working well. I had done one day in TJ and then I went to Mexicali. I did a couple of days. Mm-hmm. I, I talked to their nursing director and he was saying, you know, we know that we don't need to wear all this, but okay. nurses would go absolutely nuts if we say, hey, we're, you can't wear these bunny, bunny suits anymore. Right. You can't. So it's more like the nurses feeling safe and all that, too. Yeah. But I couldn't tell you how many times I've, I've had COVID patients and. I'm just like, all right, this is the time I'm going to get COVID because <laughs> I said that to my wife last week. I said, this is one of those days where I feel like if I don't get COVID, it's a miracle. Yeah. Um, just because you're in there and sick. And as you say, you're bronching, your people are disconnected. 
I mean, all sorts of stuff, but, you know, knock on wood, it, it hasn't happened. And, you know, it, and I think it's it just amazing how we think about it. This is just what we do. We're in and out of patient rooms all day, patients who are infectious with COVID, and we don't really think about it anymore. But to our non-medical friends, they they think it's pretty amazing that we that we do that regularly. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know any, I, I've been so impressed with the people that, you know, we work with the, the nurses, the doctors, the RTs, but, you know, the physical therapists, the nutrition people, the environmental services, I mean, everyone has been so professional and risen to whatever challenges they need to rise to to make sure these very sick patients get the best care they can get. Yeah, and, and you're seeing maybe a little more comfort with it, but I think it's overall just there's a trust with, you know, how we're dealing with it, at least, yeah. at, you know, where we're at. And yeah, everybody's great. I mean, I really appreciate, you know, everybody we work with, we have a really good team. I'm going to go back now just uh, to the, uh, the change in care, you know, that we've been using, you know, steroids now, remdesivir. I do want to ask you, a hot topic was early on, why are we using hydroxychloroquine? So yeah. Could you speak on that drug at all? Yeah, and I think that when you have a, a situation like this where people are desperately ill and you're still, you're trying to figure out what works, it, there's a challenge, right? That, you know, the logical fallacy is always, we need to do something, this is something, therefore we need to do it. And we as an institution early on sort of huddled up and said, what, what are we gonna do about this? Because there's case reports of this drug working, case reports of that drug working, but there's not a lot of evidence in terms of doing it. And we decided as a group, and again, Chip Schooley was the leader of this group, and I give him a lot of credit, that we, we were really going to go by the book. We were really going to be evidence-based, that we were going to participate in clinical trials and to, to generate answers to these questions, but we weren't going to say, hey, I read this report that drug X seemed to help, so let's put everyone on drug X. And some of the patients were not happy about that. They basically said, you know, I'm reading about this. Why are you not giving it to my relative? And we would say, because we don't know if it works. It may make things worse for all we know, um, you know, as much as better. And some patients understood where we were coming from and some didn't. And I think it was the right decision. I think that the data for hydroxychloroquine have not been positive in terms of an effect. And it was the right decision to you know, wait until that, that data were available. At the same time, we were one of the highest enrolling centers in a variety of, of clinical trials, looking at remdesivir, looking at tocilizumab, baricitimab, all of these agents, some of which were successful, some of which, you know, were shown not to work. Um, but that's how you have to try them really in that framework. And I think we learned that during the HIV epidemic, that we, we need to balance the desperation of the individual patient in front of us with trying to, to learn as a, as a society sort of what works and what doesn't. And if we don't, we don't know what we're doing and we don't learn what works and what doesn't, we, we just don't make progress. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, we, I, I've seen it used just as a study drug, hydroxychloroquine, but mm -hmm. I, I do like the way we do things that we're very mindful. People think that we're just throwing drugs at people and I don't think that's the case. You know, we're very... Mm -hmm. That certainly hasn't been our practice. I mean, occasionally we do get patients in transfer who people have a different philosophy. They've been much more aggressive about using, you know, so far unproven therapies. 
And so hydroxychloroquine, basically there's not enough supporting data that it works, correct? That's why we're not. That, that, that's correct. And I think whenever you're talking about, um, you know, whether a medication works or not, it's important to know that you're looking at the totality of the evidence and that you may have small trials that show conflicting results. This small trial suggests benefit. This small trial says it doesn't. This used slightly different patients. This used different doses of the medication. Um, so we need to look at everything. All of those trials, which one the best conducted, which do we tend to you know, feel are the most valuable and, and what have you. And while there have been some small studies that have suggested a benefit for hydroxychloroquine, there have been many more that have suggested no benefit. And um, so at this point, it, we don't feel it's helpful to patients. And, and of course, there is potential toxicity with any treatment as well. So um, it has, has been moved to the, the back of the line in terms of that. Okay. I, honestly, in terms of treatments, I think the one that really needs more discussion and more publicity are the monoclonal antibodies, because those really came out around the same time as the vaccine and didn't really get talked about. But these are medications that we give early on when people develop COVID to people who are at high risk for um, severe infection. So people who are elderly, people who have diabetes, people who have an organ transplant. And the number needed to treat to prevent a severe infection is actually pretty favorable. It's about you know, 10 to 12 treatments to save you know, a person going to the ICU. So I, I think that's something we wanna make sure our patients have access to. So could you speak on the monoclonal antibodies? What are they? Yeah. So they are antibodies against the COVID virus that bind very avidly and really deactivate the virus. And the, the issue that we run up against is there's different phases of illness with COVID. So in the first week is actually when people have more virus around. That's when they're more infectious. That's when it's in their blood. And that's when the monoclonal antibodies work because there's a lot of virus around for them to stick to and neutralize and make a difference. By the time the patient, when patients tend to get sick and come to the hospital is usually in the second week. It's between, you know, around day seven, day 10, et cetera. And at that point, they actually don't have that much virus in their body. It's more dysregulation of the immune system that's causing their problems. And that's why steroids may be helpful in that, in, in that setting. And so if we just give antiviral treatments at that point, they're probably not going to have a huge effect. I think that's one of the limitations we see with remdesivir. If you think about every other antiviral, whether it's for flu, whether it's for chickenpox or zoster, you want to start that in the first you know, 24 hours, 48 hours max, or the effectiveness just tails off. So um, I think the same thing is probably true with the virus that causes COVID. So we're at a situation where we, we, we want to treat everyone who gets, who, you know, gets a positive test. Probably not. Most people are going to do okay. But we do want to focus on that group that is more at risk. And that's um, where the monoclonal antibodies come in. They're very effective. I think there was a lot of publicity when President Trump got COVID. He received this Regeneron drug before it had been approved. That's really one of the ones that we use now. Um, and as I say, I think the data really look quite good. And UCSD has done a good job of, you know, gearing up the infusion center to provide this therapy when people need it. Very cool. So the high risk individuals will be able to go in and get our, our there's more access to Regeneron or whatever. Yeah. Antibodies. Cool. Right. Those are two main ones and they're, they're both quite good. Okay. Very cool that, that 
you know, that's, I, that's why I did, I did want to talk about the care changes because I really think that our approach is, it's just much better now and yeah. we've learned so much in a short period of time. It's amazing. Early on, they were saying that steroids, what, what steroids were, could have a negative effect. Yeah. I mean, they gave very, very high doses and, you know, I, I have always been very skeptical of steroids and sepsis in terms of, a, you know, in this infection as well. Um, you know, I think we're, we're still gathering the data. And the issue is just that the, the immune system is such a complex beast with so many different actors in play. And the tools that we have are so blunt in terms of how they impact the immune system. So it's hard to get in there and do, you know, precision surgery on the immune system with these medications exactly the way that we want. And so, you know, traditionally steroids have not been that helpful with a lot of things because I just think a, a, they, they dysregulate the immune system in some ways that's positive, but other ways that are negative as well. And, and the benefit is less clear. So, you know, it, I think, as you say, we know what to expect. Our outcomes, you know, where, where you and I practiced, thankfully, from the beginning, they were always in the top tier of, of hospitals in terms of the outcomes. But boy, it sure could take a while. And you know, I would have to remind myself sometimes I'd say, you know, I, I don't, this patient is still so sick. Have we made any progress? And then I'd look back at the notes from five days ago and say, well, actually we have, you know, like from day to day, you might not see it, but if you look back three days, four days, the trend is unmistakable. This patient is going to get there. Yeah, It's just going to take a while. It's very interesting how long people have, have been there. It's like, wow, they're still this sick. And it's like, you know, two weeks down the road or something, yeah. you know, but they get better. Um, it's amazing to see some of these people leave. Yeah. Um, leave the ICU and get better. Um, so I'm going to transition into vaccines. And I want to I want to get your opinion on it because I I think that you know there's just a lot of misinformation and also I think people need to to gather their you know gather their thoughts and actually read the research. But you know yeah. What what are your thoughts on the vaccine? I, I could not be more positive. I mean, I feel like this really is the, the light at the end of a pretty dark tunnel for us. And I was hoping we would get a vaccine that worked in some respect. You know, I think about, I think we've all, we all get the flu vaccine every year and we all get the sense that it usually kind of works. You know, we hope that even if we get the flu, it's not going to be as severe and we probably see that. And I was hoping for something like that. And what we got was something much more effective than that, you know, with effectiveness in the 95% range. I mean, truly remarkable. And with a safety profile that seems amazingly good. I think, you know, occasionally I hear people express some anxiety about um, this being a, an mRNA vaccine, that the technique is a little bit different. I think, I think every vaccine is going to be an mRNA vaccine, you know, within the next few years. It's, it's quicker, it's easier, it's safer, it's more effective. I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. So it is beyond me why people would not jump on it. I understand that people have concerns. I think in this case, those concerns have been taken care of, uh, taken very seriously. And I think fortunately, the, the data are not equivocal. You know, it's not that do you see a glass half full, half empty? This is a very, very full glass. That's that's good to hear from you, and I, you know, it makes me a little more confident. I'm one of those people who I'm a little skeptical, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I'm going to wait to take it. But also, 
I understand why people are taking it and I'm not an anti-vaxxer at all. Mm -hmm. It's just, I really want to kind of watch and see. Yeah. Save my, and I just kind of don't understand the approach, you know, for someone like me to get it when someone, we can give it to someone that's 25 that has diabetes and yeah. a kidney transplant. I mean, that's sounds more reasonable to me, but that's, I think that's, that's an excellent point. And I've wrestled with that as well. You know, if you had a choice or if you check this box, your dose would go to, you know, someone who's high risk and Chula Vista and a high risk zip code, I would probably do that, you know, cause I feel pretty safe. It turns out that when you look at the numbers of infections of people who are healthcare workers, the number in, of cases in San Diego County of, of the total cases in San Diego County, 7% are in healthcare workers, which is actually a lot given the percentage of the county that's healthcare workers. If you dig deeper, it turns out a lot of folks, I um, mean, you know, this includes everyone. This includes, you know, LPNs, healthcare, you know, people who assist in the home with bathing, with, you know, these kinds of things who are um, not as trained, what have you. And when you look at it, a lot of folks in that group and that 7% are people from high risk zip codes, high risk demographics who probably got infected, not in the healthcare setting, but nonetheless, the concern is that healthcare workers are at a high enough risk that it is justified. And furthermore, you know, if, the, if we're not healthy, the system doesn't work. And that part in my, you know, hat of doing surge capacity is a huge concern because at the same time you get a surge in the community, you start getting more sick calls and people out for two weeks. And, you know, that puts our readiness, you know, and the number of beds we can staff way down. So, so I, do, I do think it makes sense to, to get the healthcare workers teed up, but I agree, like you, it can't, what, what's real, I, I was happy to see that, but what's really gonna make me happy is seeing the kind of people who are our patients now getting vaccinated. That's, that is what I wanna see because I think they can benefit from it. It only makes sense. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'll eventually get it. I'm sure that I'll be even forced to potentially get it, but not a big deal. I don't know about that, but, you know, we, we need you, man. We need you healthy and ready to go. I'm not at home watching Lifetime movies for two weeks. Yeah, this is true. Well, that sounds nice as well. <laughs> it sounds great, but unfortunately, we are needed and we can't really do that. Yes, this is true. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening to this episode of Martial Arts Medcast. I want to thank Dr. Jess Mendel for coming on. I appreciate you. Thank you. Happy to be here. We'll wrap it up and we will see you guys next time. Mm -hmm.